This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Host, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, how are you? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, September 26th. Today, details from a whistleblower's complaint about the president, how oil producers think about climate change, and a new frontier for kosher meat. So, Shane Harris, two very big things happened today. What were those things? Director, would you rise for the oath and raise your right hand? First, we had a hearing featuring the acting director of National Intelligence, Joe McGuire. Chairman Schiff, uh, Ranking Member Nunez, and members of the committee, good morning. I'd like to begin by thanking Talking you, about a whistleblower complaint that we've all been talking about for the past week. And the other was we got to see the complaint. An unclassified version of it was released. It is highly detailed and arresting, and it is the first chance that we have had to really get the full scope of picture about the allegations this person has made against President Trump. Allegations that President Trump may have tried to pressure Ukrainian officials to investigate Joe Biden. Correct. And this person believes this was part of an effort to, by the president to use his powers in office to get a foreign country to interfere in the election. I appreciate the committee providing me this opportunity to discuss this matter and the ongoing commitment to work with the Congress on your important oversight role. Thank you very much, sir. So I want to get to the complaint in a second. But first, let's talk about this hearing that happened. The presidential oath of office requires the president of the United States to do two things. So set up for me, like, what were people expecting going into this? The expectation was that this would be the first time that anyone senior in the administration had spoken publicly about this whistleblower complaint. And Joe McGuire, it was known by that point, had made the decision as the director of national intelligence not to share the whistleblower's complaint with Congress. This had happened after consultations with the White House and with the Justice Department, and for a number of reasons, it ultimately decided that he couldn't share it with Congress. So the expectation was that he would come up there and probably face a lot of very strong questioning, particularly from Democrats, about why he made that decision to block that complaint and who in the White House or the Justice Department advised him to do so. So this hearing really wasn't about the contents of the complaint itself. It was more about why it took so long for the complaint to reach Congress and what the decision-making was behind there. Yeah, a lot of the, it was about that. It was always anticipated to be about that as well. Of course, it started to get into the contents of the complaint as well. But I found that the first at least you know hour or so of it was really focused on this process because I think Democrats in particular were trying to suss out, did anyone in the White House or the Justice Department tell you, don't share this with Congress? Did you ever talk to the president about this? These kinds of, you know, what did officials know and when did they know it and who directed you? That was really what Democrats were circling around for a good part of the beginning of the hearing. Is the first party you went to outside of your office to seek advice, a counsel, direction, the White House? I have consulted with the White House counsel, and eventually we also consulted with the Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel. And my question is, did you go to the White House first? 
I went to the Office of Legal Counsel for advice. Yes, sir. That, well. Well, you heard that from Representative Adam Schiff when he was asking over and over again in a bunch of different ways, basically, did you talk to the Department of Justice first or did you talk to the White House first? Who did you go to first to ask permission to give this this complaint to Congress? Well, Director, I'm just I'm still trying to understand the chronology. So you first went to the Office of Legal Counsel and then you went to White House Counsel? We went, excuse me, and then to the... And it took a while for him to get an answer, but eventually McGuire basically said... No, 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 sir. No, sir. I went to the White House first. We went to the, we went to the White House first to determine, to ask the okay, question. Okay, that, that's all I want to know is chronology. So you went to the White House first. Right, and I think that troubled a lot of people because the White House, and specifically the president, are the subject of this whistleblower complaint. So Schiff is asking McGuire, why are you going to get permission on how to handle a whistleblower complaint to the person who's being complained about? You went to the subject of the complaint for advice first about whether you should provide the complaint to Congress. Now, his answer for that was, as soon as he first read this complaint, he said he was struck, that was his word, by how much of it centered on this communication, this phone call that President Trump had had with President Zelensky of Ukraine. And it immediately occurred to McGuire, understandably so, this might be some kind of communication that's covered by privilege. When I saw this report and complaint, immediately I knew that this was a serious matter. It came to me, and I just thought it would be prudent well, to I, ensure. I, I'm just asking if the conflict of interest concerned you. Generally, what the president says to foreign leaders uh, is something that stays within the White House. So he decided it would be, as he kept saying over and over again, prudent to go get guidance on this. Now, interestingly, the inspector general of the intelligence community, who's in McGuire's office, had already reviewed this uh, complaint, finds it credible, finds it meets the statutory definition of an urgent concern. Usually, and according to law, that's enough. That's supposed to say, okay, Joe McGuire, give this to Congress. But it's McGuire that decides there may be something more here, some other sensitivities that we need to take into consideration. That's what starts this process down these very unusual avenues that even McGuire said were unique. And what were Republicans saying throughout this? Republicans really focused on two things. One was, as Devin Nunes, the ranking member, kind of cast it in, the, in his opening remarks, that what you're seeing here is just another version of the Russia hoax. And also, there were others who were going to the source of the complaint. And one of the things that's spelled out very clearly in the top of the complaint is that this individual says, I'm not having, I don't have this information firsthand. I'm getting this from people who I know in the White House. And Republicans sought to discredit the veracity of the information by saying this is all hearsay. This is all secondhand. On page one, the complaint reads, quote, I was not a direct witness to most of the events described. This seems like a very important line to look into. For the record, did the IG fully investigate the allegations into this complaint at this time? As I said earlier, Congresswoman, I believe that the intelligence community inspector general did a thorough investigation with the 14-day time frame that he had, and under that timeline, to the best of his ability, made the determination that it was both credible and urgent. I have no reason to doubt that Michael Atkinson did anything but uh, his, his, his job. Well, let's talk about the complaint itself, because I think even from the opening line, it is pretty amazing in multiple ways. So the first line of this document says, 
In the course of my official duties, I have received information from multiple U.S. government officials that the President of the United States is using the power of his office to solicit interference from a foreign country in the 2020 U.S. election. Yeah. I mean, if that doesn't stop you in your tracks, nothing will. That is arresting. That is alarming. And I think that is probably by design. I mean, this is a very persuasively written document. It's written like an argument. It is walking the reader through a series of facts and trying to connect dots in some cases and lay out circumstantial evidence. It is a startling read from the very beginning. So what were the incidents or events that were cited in this document that we didn't know about from the rough transcript that was made public yesterday about this phone call? So I think the, one of the big actions that we didn't know about is what happens after this phone call and what happens with the memo or other documents that appear to have been created to memorialize it. This whistleblower says that rather than storing this information on a computer network where this kind of information records of a, of a phone call is normally stored, it's moved on to some kind of separate system that appears to be separated from that normal computer system, apparently to restrict its access so that it won't be seen by as many people as would normally be able to lay eyes on that. And is there a sense from this complaint about whether or not that is normal for documents memorializing phone calls with other foreign leaders? Yeah, this person clearly says it's clear, thinks it's not normal, that what's happened here, and he alludes he or she alludes to other instances as well in which this has happened, that essentially these records are being placed kind of in a segregated system, and that there appear to have been kind of a process that has been put in place. And I think the inference here, if not really in some cases maybe explicitly kind of pointed to, is that this is what White House officials are doing with phone calls that could be potentially embarrassing to the president, that are especially sensitive, that is not the way this process works. The system that this person is describing where this information is being sort of shoveled over to is supposed to be for really high-level national security secrets, the whistleblower says, not for potentially politically embarrassing or uncomfortable information. That's really shocking because, I mean, it, it doesn't just speak to a potential mishandling of information. What it speaks to is almost some sort of like consciousness of guilt, Hmm. on the part of White House officials who are looking at this conversation the president's having and seem to be saying, yeah, this does not look good. There's a question of why would you put it on the separate server unless you were concerned that— Lots of people were going to read it. Yeah. Right. The separate server has a much smaller distribution, apparently. And, of course, we know from earlier reporting that there were meetings and conversations that President Trump was having foreign officials, the details of which were leaking out. It may be that White House officials said, all right, we got to restrict access to this stuff because we have a leaky ship here. But, again, that's not how this is supposed to work. I think, too, I mean, we can remember that the president called, you know, a beautiful phone call and it was fine. Well, I mean, we all read it and I think many people, I mean, Republicans talked about this in the hearing this morning saying this is not good. You're not supposed to do what you did here. And so I think it's fascinating to see that back in the White House, there is this awareness that the president has these kinds of really troubling calls and apparently there is some kind of cover-up mechanism that comes in place to try and sweep it under the rug. So that was more information about the circumstances that followed the phone call. But then we have these other events, many of which involve the president's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, about his interactions with the Ukrainian government or Ukrainian officials. And that was also new and I think a little bit surprising to see the ways in which people within the administration were concerned about those those interactions. Yeah, this really, and, and interestingly, it uses a lot of public reporting and news articles to kind of string this together. 
paints a picture of Rudy Giuliani as acting as President Trump's emissary and kind of point man in Ukraine in his efforts to pressure the Ukrainian government into investigating President Trump's political opponents, Joe Biden, Democrats, and others. And it almost paints a picture, I think, of this sort of this kind of information pipeline where Rudy Giuliani seems to be picking up things in Ukraine, feeding it to conservative journalists. It gets out into an ecosystem. It kind of gets picked up and, and almost kind of seized upon by the president who is reading some of these things that frankly amount to conspiracy theories. But Rudy really does appear to be this person on the ground meeting with lots of Ukrainian officials. And U.S. officials are clearly alarmed by this. I mean, why is the president's personal attorney acting in some kind of foreign policy capacity. That's that's highly unusual. He's not accountable to anyone in the government. He has a privileged relationship with the president. It's just it is just fraught with, with problems. And then this document also cites multiple US officials who had heard from Ukrainian officials about their sense there was pressure on them to quote unquote play ball with the president and his his demand, his request for an investigation into Joe Biden. Right. And that is very important when we're trying to establish what was the Ukrainian side's understanding of what President Trump wanted and what was the context in which he was asking for these investigations. We've talked a lot about quid pro quo and whether or not the rough transcript shows a quid pro quo. This seems to be trying to establish that the whole relationship was a quid pro quo, and the Ukrainians understood that the president expected and wanted certain things from them. So taken in their whole, with both the contents of this complaint out in the public and also this hearing today, what do you think that changes about our understanding of what transpired between President Trump and Ukraine and whether that could or could not be an impeachable offense? I think one thing this does for us is makes very clear, which we've understood, but now we see it vividly, is that this issue was never about just one phone call. This issue is about an alleged series and a pattern of behavior by the president and his lawyer to try and leverage a foreign government to investigate his political enemies, to try and help interfere in the election. So I think we're starting to see this now as this whole kind of pattern emerging. And it's so interesting because now we're going back and remembering, you know, things the president once said about Ukraine, news reports about Rudy Giuliani being in Ukraine. And it's all kind of coming now into this much clearer focus. To me, if the Democrats are looking at a sort of case for impeachment, this arguably helps that case because you're not just talking about one phone call and one rough transcript of a phone call where you have to find some kind of smoking gun, you're seeing a pattern of behavior. And even if it necessarily doesn't amount to criminal activity, the whole point of impeachment is that it is meant to be a check on abuse in office. If you're looking to make an argument about abuse in office, you're going to need multiple examples. You're going to need to show that it was a pattern, that it was maybe habitual in some nature. This document seems to be providing that evidence. Shane Harris covers national security and intelligence for The Post.
Tell me your name and your job. My name is Juliet Eilbrin. I'm the senior national affairs correspondent for The Washington Post, covering environmental and energy policy. Tell me about this meeting that you've been reporting on. Session on honor. Um, earlier this year in May, we had a longer session in Houston where they presented on all this information as well. So if you were lucky enough to there was a meeting that took place in late June of the Independent Petroleum Association of America, which are a number of small and mid-sized oil and gas producers that really produce most of the oil and gas that's generated in the United States. And they had gathered in Colorado Springs, Colorado, behind closed doors to talk about what are some of the major issues facing the industry. And Juliet says that what was discussed at this meeting is important because it gives a behind-the-scenes look at how oil producers' thinking about climate change is evolving, even while they defend against lawsuits that would limit their ability to drill on public lands. At a time when President Trump and his top deputies are moving full steam ahead with expanding fossil fuel production in the United States, you have oil and gas industry officials themselves trying to adopt a more nuanced approach. I also wanted to mention that this session, like every other session, is off the record. Um, The Washington Post obtained a recording and was able to verify that all the comments in the recording were accurate. Uh, Good afternoon, everybody. It's uh, always a pleasure to be at an IPAA event. uh, In this tape, you have three top lawyers in the industry, including... Mark Barron. Uh, I want to focus for a second on the connection between our lawsuits and politics. Who's a partner at the firm Baker Hostetler and who leads their energy litigation group. I, I want to sort of emphasize that for many years there have been discussions in this room about, you know, the facts of climate change, the science of climate change, uh, whether, you know, uh, sort of investor activism about climate change with some of your companies. When you have someone like Mark Barron saying... We've got a closed session. Let me offer my view. It doesn't matter whether it's real or not real or what the issues are. That ship has sailed from a political perspective. It's very striking that he's trying to say, like, give it up. It's not worth debating it. And, in fact, he encounters some resistance. There's someone in the room... Who doesn't identify himself, who says you've been brainwashed and, you know, these catastrophic climate predictions are not justified. So you get to see a little of the push and pull. I also thought it was very interesting that Mark Barron notes that he's 42 years old and basically says there's nobody younger than 40 years old in the entire United States whose entire growing up education and science class climate change was taken for granted as an existential crisis that we need to address. That's not the language that you expect to hear from a lawyer representing the oil industry. It's something you expect to hear from a climate activist in the streets of a major city. Because up until this point, a lot of oil and petroleum manufacturers in the U.S. have still insisted that what they do doesn't have anything to do with climate change. Historically, that's absolutely been the position of a number of the major companies. Now, in recent years... Several companies and trade associations have started to say that this is a factor contributing to climate change, but it is something that certainly isn't really touted that much. And most importantly, the politicians who talk about what to do when it comes to energy production consistently downplay it, including the president of the United States, who questions the connection between human activity and climate change. 
So if you have these petroleum producers in a room talking about how they need to be more open about the fact that climate change is a thing that is part of their industry that they're contributing to, in some ways that's in direct conflict with how the Trump administration thinks about oil and climate change. It's really at odds with what we've seen coming out of this administration, particularly at the highest levels. What do you think the world should be doing about climate change, and do you still harbor that skepticism? Uh, I feel that we're the number one energy producer in the world. Soon it will be by far the number one. Uh, It's tremendous wealth, and I'm not going to lose that wealth. I'm not going to lose it on, on dreams, on windmills which, frankly, aren't working too well. You have the president and some prominent people, you know, in his administration who really downplay this connection between what's happening with oil and gas production, which is expanding in the United States, and the fact that the planet is warming and this is contributing to it. So if we're reaching this moment where oil and gas producers are willing to talk openly about their role in contributing to climate change, What are they planning to do to try to limit the ways that what they do is making the planet worse? A lot of the biggest companies are now saying that they're going to take steps to address the carbon footprint of their operations. And this is a shift. This is something that's happened. And again, it's happening at the same moment when the Trump administration is changing the rules to say you don't have to take these precautions. So what's interesting is, you know, again, you have activists and world leaders who are gathering this week in New York City to address climate change. And you had a consortium of oil and gas companies that showed off these are the investments they're making in technology to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. One of the most interesting things that we see in this private discussion is the balancing act that the oil and gas industry is trying to do. On one level, they feel like they need to acknowledge that their operations are helping fuel climate change in part because they don't want policies that are so out of sync with the science that they're going to be rejected by the courts. In fact, one of the arguments they're making is that there should be more natural gas production, which is something that many of these companies do. It has a lower footprint than oil when it comes to warming the planet, but it is still a major fossil fuel that's driving climate change. And so those are some of the things they're doing to try to preserve their companies at a time when the science is increasingly dire when it comes to climate change. Juliet Alprin is the senior national affairs correspondent for The Post, covering environmental and energy policy. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. 
And now one more thing from Business of Food reporter Laura Riley. Ahead of the high holy days, how the rise of fake meat raises new questions for Jews keeping kosher. Well, I wrote a story about Tyson launching this uh, plant-based shrimp. And in the kind of aftermath of that story, one of my editors said, a Jewish editor, said, by the way, is it kosher? And it made me think, wow, I hadn't considered that element of it, that the kind of religious doctrine has to deal with all of this kind of raft of new food technology. So I needed to talk to the rabbi community, because I think that that's the religious body that has given the most thought to this so far. And some of that is that Jews have a tradition of kind of Talmudic debate. And so something like this happens, there's a a new technology that impacts the Orthodox community or even just the observing, because there are plenty of people who keep kosher who are not Orthodox. But a change like this comes and the rabbis have to weigh in, you know, is this what God intended? If God intended us to be separate and different and special and have to exert extra effort on behalf of our faith is a fake shrimp flouting the the rules. And so I think they had to kind of come together and and hash it out. And I think that they've pretty much decided, and this is not, you know, 100% across the board, but for the most part, the rabbis have decided that plant-based protein is okay. And in fact, With uh, the Orthodox community or the the kosher-keeping community growing year over year, especially amongst younger Jews, it may allow more people to kind of come into the fold. So I think they're looking at this as a convenience food that is not alienating and that allows people who keep kosher to adhere to the letter of the law, but to not be inconvenienced by having to kind of go to the back of the store or go to a special store. Cell-cultured is a completely different thing, and I think that there's lots of debate still going on because, I mean, for Jews in particular, they eat beef that's only from the forequarter of the animal, and it has to be bled a certain way, etc. If you're a Muslim and, and you adhere to halal rules, that animal has to be slaughtered in a humane and particular way. So if there's no slaughter, if there are no quarters of the animal because there's no whole animal, there are no bones to kind of demarcate the the okay stuff from the not okay stuff, how are we supposed to think about it? And I, I think that those are questions that are yet to be answered by a lot of people. Laura Riley reports on the business of food for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. On Friday's episode of Post Reports, why Kenan Thompson is the secret backbone of Saturday Night Live. I am the longest running cast member on Saturday Night Live, and I'm an African-American male, and I think that's a cool stat for America. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. 
To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.